guys. <laughs> I see Matthew back there, and he's laughing. I don't know if he uh, thinks it's hilarious or if he's, uh, <laughs> if he's embarrassed of his parents, but <laughs> praise God. Thanks. Um, you know, we've been talking about the intergenerational thing a lot the last couple weeks, and, and that's one of the things that we value here, and, and certainly uh, those on the, uh, you know, who consider ourselves to be on the older side need to be praying for those who come behind us. Certainly that's a huge part of the intergenerational thing, but for those who look at people like David and Margaret and feel like, man, they're so far ahead in the, in the journey. Um, it's uh, people like that that we have to be praying for in order that they can blaze those trails that we walk in so that they can do their best to, to lead and to be the kind of people who say, follow me as I follow Christ. And so um, young people, please do pray for those who are older than you. Uh, pray, Lord God, help them to be great examples and great role models and great heroes of the faith that would help us and Help us to grow into the full uh, God-given potential and destiny that you have for us. So uh, please uh, do keep uh, each other in prayer. This is how we grow together as a community of faith. Um, Every December, every December, uh, there is a prize given to one person typically in the world who does their best to promote peace within uh, the nations. This is called the Nobel Peace Prize. Uh, first time it was given out was 1901, and there's kind of an interesting story as to why it was originally designed. 1901, uh, there's a man named Alfred Nobel. Okay, Alfred Nobel, uh, his brother died. The very next day, Alfred Nobel looked in the newspaper thinking that he was going to read the obituary of his brother only to find out that the newspaper had made a mistake and thought that it was he who had died. And so here's Alfred Nobel reading the newspaper, an obituary of his own death. Can you imagine that? You open the Orlando Sentinel tomorrow and you read that you have died? Like, what will that do to a person? Well, it scared the living daylights out of him. And he read that and he said, this is what I'm I'm known for. This is my legacy. This is my heritage. This is what I'm leaving behind to people. And he realized, I need to live for something a whole lot bigger than this. And so he made a conscious decision at that time that I'm going to live my life and I'm going to leave something of greater significance. And so in 1901, he began what's called the Nobel Peace Prize. And then it scattered and and, and spread to other different uh, kinds of areas of life. But death has a way of causing us to rethink things, doesn't it? It has a way of bringing about this crisis in life to cause us to rethink the way that we're living. And a lot of times what happens when we come face to face with death is that faith is awakened within a heart of a person. That's why in the Sunday after, September 11th, in the attacks on our Twin Towers, church attendance skyrocketed to unprecedented levels because people for the first time in the American consciousness began to realize Death comes quickly, it can come to anybody, even though I'm not looking for death, sometimes death will come looking for me, and it doesn't wait for anybody, and our name can be called at any moment of our lives. And so when the American public came face to face with death, for a lot of people, they began to think about and take their faith a little bit more seriously than they did on September 10th, 2001. Death has a way of awakening in us things that were either dead or dormant before. And today, as we continue looking at the Hall of Faith, I want to talk about four 
specific themes that come in the timeline of history up until after what we've talked about so far and talk about what we see about faith and life in the face of death. Hebrews chapter 11. I'm going to read verses 28 through 31. As you turn there, you remember we've been tracking the history of Israel, the heroes of the faith, just like Miss Margaret said that kings were written about kings, the Hebrews were written to Hebrews. And so the writer of Hebrews doesn't go into great detail about the stories that the Hebrew people had already known and should have known about, just kind of talks about them in passing. But I'm going to have to go over them a little bit more because we're not Hebrews and we may not be familiar with the true stories of what the author is writing. But we've gotten to this point in the life of the Hebrew people where Moses was born. He was born and raised as the potential heir to the Pharaoh but he refused to be known as the son of Pharaoh's daughter, rejected the title of the prince of Egypt, cast his lot with a bunch of slaves who were the people of God and said, I'd rather be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the sinful pleasures of Egypt for a short period of time because he said, I'd rather have Jesus than anything else in life. And at the age of 40, he made that decision. And at the age of 40, he left Egypt in order to be prepared in the desert of Midian for what God would do in him so that at the age of 80, he returned to Egypt to say to Pharaoh, let my people go. This is where we pick up verse 28, chapter 11, Hebrews. By faith, Moses, by faith, he kept the Passover and the sprinkling of blood so that the destroyer of the firstborn would not touch the firstborn of Israel. By faith, the people passed through the Red Sea as on dry land, but when the Egyptians tried to do so, <clears throat> they were drowned. By faith, the walls of Jericho fell after the people had marched around them for seven days. By faith, the prostitute, Rahab, because she welcomed the spies, was not killed with those who were disobedient. This is God's word. Four scenes in the history of Israel. Four scenes involving death and life, four scenes involving faith, four scenes of impossible situations where faith is put to the test and where faith in God comes through. What I want to do is I, wanna, I want to go scene by scene and try and explain what's happening in each of these scenes. And then at the end of that, I'm going to pull out two thoughts of application that will help us to see the big picture and apply these into our lives. So you remember, here's Moses. He feels in his heart this burden. His parents saw in him someone different, that he's going to be the deliverer of God's people out of Egypt, out of slavery, and into the promised land, the promised land that was promised to Abraham years earlier. And so Moses rises up. He's in the desert getting ready. And finally, God says, all right, Moses, it's time. Moses meets God at a burning bush. And God says, I've heard my people cry. Go to Egypt and tell Pharaoh to let my people go. So here goes Moses from the desert of Midian, goes back to Egypt. He goes to the most powerful man in the world, and he says, Pharaoh, Pharaoh, <laughs> oh, baby, let my people go. And Pharaoh says, no. And so Moses says, God, what are we going to do? And God says, I'm going to send a plague on Egypt to get Pharaoh's attention, to let him know who he's fighting with, and then he's going to have to make a choice. So the plagues come, nine plagues, one right after the other, and Pharaoh still says, no, I'm not going to let you go. And so the last plague that God gives, the number 10 out of number 10, he says, every firstborn 
in Egypt is going to get killed. Every firstborn animal, every firstborn child, whether you're Israelite or Egyptian, the angel of death is going to come and the firstborn is going to get killed, wiped out. But there would be an out. That if you put the blood of a lamb, a sacrificial lamb, over the doorframe of your house, then as the angel of death goes house to house, it will pass over your home. So verse 28 says, By faith he kept the Passover and the sprinkling of blood so that the destroyer of the firstborn would not touch the firstborn of Israel. That's the first scene we see. The second scene. So the Passover happens. The people of God leave Egypt. Everyone in Egypt, firstborn, are all, who, who did not have the blood of an animal over their doorframe, is dead. And so all over Egypt is wailing. Even the son of Pharaoh, his firstborn, was killed. Okay, regardless of your position, regardless of your power, prestige, or money, any of those things, the firstborn was killed if they did not have the blood of an animal over it. And so the Israelites are leaving. They get out of Egypt. They're so excited. My chains are gone. I've been set free. They're leaving the land of slavery and on their way to the promised land when all of a sudden Pharaoh says, hold up. We just lost an entire nation of slaves. We lost a major engine of our economy. We've got to get them back. And so the Pharaoh who said to the Israelites, you can go, changes his mind, and he starts chasing after them. And so here the Israelites are walking out of Egypt, and they get to the Red Sea. They get to the Red Sea, and they realize, holy cow, there's someone behind us. It's the Egyptian army, and they want to kill us. So here they are, they've got a raging sea in front of them, and they've got a raging army behind them. You've got an angry sea in front of you, and you've got an angry army behind you. And so the people of God are saying, all right, Moses, great. It would have been better for us to be slaves in Egypt and to die there than to die here in the wilderness. And so what does Moses do? He says, darn it, God, what are we going to do? And God says, stand firm, I'm going to fight for you. So he tells him to put the staff down and the seas part. And it says in verse 29, by faith, the people passed through the Red Sea as on dry land. But when the Egyptians tried to do so, they were destroyed. So it parts like this aisle here. The Israelites walk by on dry ground. It's it's like, I, I imagine it's like SeaWorld when you go on that little conveyor belt that takes you from one side of that whole shark tank to the other. And, and there's all these animals around you. There's all these sea creatures around you. And you're walking on dry ground. And the angel was behind the Israelites, separating the Israelites from the Egyptians. So when the Egyptians said, all right, let's go too, they go in, and the waters collapse around them. That's scene two. Scene three. Scene three comes up in verse 30. By faith, it talks about the walls of Jericho. So here are the people of God. By faith, they've done these great miracles, seen these great miracles, and there's a massive gap of 40 years in between verses 29 and 30. 40 years in between these years where the Israelites fail and falter in their faith in the wilderness. They start grumbling, they start complaining, they stop trusting God. And so that generation, what should have been a day's trip, wander for 40 years in the wilderness. And that generation dies because of their lack of faith. And a new generation rises up. And the whole book of Numbers, okay, the whole book of Numbers tells the next generation, don't make the mistakes that the first generation made before you. 
Don't doubt God. Don't grumble. But in thanksgiving and in trust, you will enter into the land of promise. And so that's what the next generation did. And so they enter into the promised land. But the first thing they see when they get to Canaan is Jericho. Jericho is the first city that you'd enter as you come to the promised land of Canaan. And because so many people wanted to get into the land of Canaan, so many attackers wanted to get into Canaan, Jericho was an ever-important, crucial city. And so the inhabitants of Jericho, realizing their strategic importance, knowing that invading armies wanted to get in, what do they do? (laughs) They build a wall, a massive wall, a huge wall, a gigantic wall that the spies of Israel said, you know what, it looks like it reaches to the heavens. Not only was this a tall wall, but it was immensely fortified. They said it was so wide that two chariots running side by side could run on top of the walls of Jericho. This was massive, and it was meant to keep invading armies out. And so here are the Israelites. They've got nothing, right? They've got nothing, and they come to the walls, and they look at Moses. They're like, what are we going to do? They look at Joshua. They're like, what are we going to do now? And so here's Joshua's game plan. This is what God said to Moses. We're going to walk around the walls of Jericho. First day, we're going to walk around. The priests will be in the front. The Ark of the Covenant symbolizing the presence of God will be there. We're just going to walk around the city. They're like, then what? (laughs) And day two, you do the same thing again. For three, four, five, six days, we're going to walk around the city. Then what? Then on the seventh day, we're going to do it again. But the seventh day, we're going to do it seven times. Then what are you going to do? This wall is massive. And then we're going to blow the trumpets and we're going to yell as loud as we can. <laughs> the Israelites are looking at Moses like, uh, Joshua, they're like, what are you talking about? This is insanity. This makes no sense. And then what? And then the walls are going to fall down. And we're going to enter into the land that God has promised. They're like, are you kidding me? But it says in verse 30, by faith, the walls of Jericho fell after the people had marched around them for seven days. This is crazy, wild. Verse 31, scene four, by faith, the prostitute Rahab, because she welcomed the spies, was not killed with those who were disobedient. So the last scene here, what happened was that the people of God sent forth 12 spies to scout out that land. And deceit. Can we take it? Ten of these spies came back and said, there's no way. We can't do this. But two of the spies said, you know what? With God, we can do this. Yeah, the ten said, we're like grasshoppers and they're like giants. But even grasshoppers with God can overtake the giant. And so when they come into the promised land, Rahab the prostitute welcomes these spies, gives them shelter because somehow in her mind she had heard about the things that the God of Israel had done and somehow in her mind she said this God must be real and somewhere in her heart faith was born within her to say you know what I would rather cast my lot like Moses did with this group of people who don't stand a chance against my massive armies and I will identify with them. Even though it seems like putting my life in danger. And so the two spies said, listen, when we come and take this land that God is going to give to us, I want you to hang this scarlet cord out your window 
and you'll be spared. So when the Israelites take the land, archaeologists say that these people and the Canaanites are some of the most wicked people, right? Inhumane, human rights violations, up the wazoo, all kinds of things that they did, just immoral, inhumane stuff. So they said to wipe out the people who lived in that land was not only spiritually renewing, but it was socially necessary because of all of the injustice that the people of Canaan had perpetrated against even innocent people, women and children, their own as well. And so everything gets wiped out except for this prostitute named Rahab. That's what we see in scene four. Four scenes, four impossible things. And I know I, I had to explain it once again because we're not Hebrew, we're not Jewish people, and because we may not be familiar with these true stories. Now, two thoughts of application here. The first thing that we see as it relates to faith and life, faith and death, faith and the impossible, all of these things, faith doesn't need to know how it's going to be done. It doesn't know how it's going to work out. It just needs to know who is doing the work. It doesn't need to know how. It needs to know who. Because you look at each of, the, each of these scenes are crazy situations. You tell somebody, hey, listen, all of us are going to die except people who paint and sprinkle blood over your home. Go do it. That doesn't make any sense. That's crazy. You're hearing this. You're like, well, I, if an angel of death is going to come, I should get my weapons. I should get my shield. I should get whatever it is. But all they're saying, just sprinkle the blood of an animal. And they did it by faith. To cross the Red Sea doesn't make any sense. Hey, just stand here. The, part, the sea is going to part. You're going to walk on it on dry. That doesn't make any sense. Hey, how are we going to overtake the walls of Jericho, the walls that reach to the heavens? Hey, just walk around it seven times, then walk around it seven more times, blow your trumpets, yell real loud, the walls are going to fall. It doesn't make any sense. Why would a prostitute of all people, a Gentile woman, prostitute, shady woman, why would she, amongst all of the people in the promised land, be spared? None of this makes any sense, but God never said faith has to make sense to you. You don't need to figure out how it's going to be done. All you need to do is trust the one who tells you to do it and step out in obedience to him. Think about the walls of Jericho. This is crazy stuff, right? Just walk around it. Right? So here, hey, God said to do it. God has done some crazy things before. Forty years ago, our parents told us that we walked through. They walked through the Red Sea. The Israelites did it, and they died. That's why we're alive. That's why we're here. They're hearing these stories. So when God says, walk around the city six days in a row, they're thinking, all right, this is going to be exciting. Maybe God's going to show up in our generation, in our day. They walk around the city one time thinking maybe a brick is going to fall out or something's going to happen. They walk around day one, nothing happens. All right, maybe we got to walk around again in order for us to see something happen. They walk around a second day, like today's going to be the day. Nothing happens again. Maybe a, a murmur of doubt begins to Rise up amongst the people. Third day, let's just do three days. Three days is so significant in scripture. Let's go three days. The third day they walk around, nothing. Six days come and six days go, and all of a sudden, they're not walking with that, their head held high anymore. They're not walking with that swag anymore. The people inside, the fortified walls are thinking, ha, they're just walking around. They think that's going to do it, and they start, maybe they're throwing tomatoes over, making fun of them, ringing the, whatever they're doing, but the Israelites are thinking, we've walked around six times and nothing has happened. The seventh day, they're walking around. Maybe it, the, the first time we walk around the seventh day, second time, and then the seventh time, they walk around on the seventh day, they blow the trumpets, and all of a sudden, faith gets vindicated, and bam, the walls come down. It didn't make any 
sense to them, and it still didn't. But can I tell you, it was never our job to figure out how God is going to work this out. It was to trust who's saying it and then to walk out in obedience. You take your kids. I take my kids to, to hey, hey, kids, get ready. We're going to go to Target because I'm going to buy you some Legos. It's not Elise and Eliza and Manny's job to go to the computer and say, hey, you know what, Dad? Um, we don't have a budget for Legos. Mom, I think Dad is losing his mind. He told us to pick out some Legos, but where are we going to get the money from? Like, how can we afford this? I don't, think you, I don't think you know what you're doing. I think you've made the wrong decision, Dad. It's not up to them to figure out how we're going to get it. It's up to them to simply trust and obey because that's what children do, and that's what faith does. Listen, there are a lot of times in our lives where God calls us to do something that doesn't seem to make sense, where he tells you to pray about something where you can't possibly conceive how this is going to ha- how am I going to get into that co- how am I going to get into college how am I going to get a job how am I going to get married how am I going to have kids you know what people said you know what the doctor said you know what the report said how the- it's not up to us to figure it out it's up to us to know who's working and to trust him and to obey and uh, those who went to the Dominican, 18 people are in the Dominican Republic right now. And I, I, I shared this with them, and I shared this with a few other people who were there uh, that night. But a couple weeks ago, uh, I don't know if you guys were there, some of, a, a lot of us were there. We had a softball game, right? Softball game, amazing, great game, so exciting, so fun. Two weeks before the event, because of the beauty of AccuWeather, 14-day tracker, 100% chance of rain on the day we're going to play softball. Oh, Okay. Hey, uh, what should we do? Should we reschedule it? No, we've got 14 days to pray. Let's pray. 14 days. That's fine. No problem. God, it's, it's not hard for God to whoop, move a cloud over, and then it's fine. No, just cool. Seven days away from the day we're supposed to play, 100% chance of rain and thunderstorm and lightning. What are we going to do? Should we reschedule it? No, let's pray. Hey, this is why, we, this why we're talking about faith. Y'all, let's pray. And so the organizers, Ryan Lee and Josh Mark Kim, are like, yeah, let's just pray. Telling the people in the DR mission, uh, short-term missionaries, yeah, let's pray. We're going we're gonna to pray. We're going to do this. Day by day, right, week, uh, the week of. It's like Jericho. Monday comes, 100% chance of rain still on Sunday. Tuesday comes, 100% chance of rain. Wednesday, 100% chance of rain. It's Sunday, 100% chance of rain. At, from 4 o'clock until 8 p.m., right over Little Lake Butler. That's where we're playing. What are we going to do? Let's just keep praying. We got time. We got God. Let's keep praying. Soon as worship service ends, uh, Pastor Daniel and I are standing out there. The first person to greet us, looking at his phone, uh, there's a 100% chance of rain and thunderstorm. That's cool. Let's pray. Hey, just keep on praying. Keep on praying. That morning I woke up, and I was kind of hedging my bets. I'll be honest with you. I was hedging my bets. I said, God, it would be really great if you would keep the rain away, because a lot of people need this. A lot of people want this. This would be good for a lot of people's faith. And this is me hedging. I said, but God, I understand. We're in Florida. Farmers need rain. Orange girls need rain. The economy needs rain. So I'd understand, but it would be really good if you can give us uh, a few hours of, of good weather so we can play. And so God said, okay, you know, we'll see what we can do. We'll just go with it. I think he said that. I didn't hear it with my ears, but I imagine that he did. So we get there, and then it's like 2 o'clock, 3 o'clock, storm clouds are coming. 
checking the weather. All this stuff is happening. We've got missions training. And, and, and for the folks who are going to DR, they're so cute, so sweet. These like 10th grade, 11th grade, 12th grade. And they're acting like there's not a cloud in the sky. They're making their posters. Yeah, come bake sale. We got all this stuff, hot dogs. And, and, and none of them are thinking anything else. We're praying. We're praying to God about it. He can make it happen. He's going to keep the rain away. And then about 4.30, I started getting these phone calls from people. Are we going to play? Like, it's really bad out. So we're going to play. We're going to go, and we're just going to see what happens. Five o'clock. Hey, we're going to play? Like, getting from, from all, like, all different places in central Florida. There's a group that said uh, uh, from the east side, right, Altamont Springs, Maitland area. They said, hey, uh, are we going to play? I texted back. I said, yeah, we're going to play. And they said, uh, I think we're going to stay home because it was really dangerous for us to get home. We almost, we almost died. It's like Noah's Ark out here, so I think we're going to stay home. Another group was going uh, to come and watch, but they said, oh, you know, it's really bad. They went to Gainesville. They said on the way to Gainesville, there was a foot of rain because we were certain, we were certain that the softball game was going to get canceled. All of these different things. Dr. Phillips said, like, it's a torrential downpour. I got, it, it, it's raining cats and dogs, and I stepped on a poodle, and all of these crazy things are happening. This is insanity. All over Claremont, people are saying, hey, it's, it's like crazy out here. And about 5.30, 5.30 starts raining here at church, like 10 minutes away from where we're going to play. <laughs> but our organizers, man, there's like this defiant thing of like, we're going to play. Yeah, we're going to play. It's not because, it's not this sense of, doggone it, we're going to play. We work too hard for this. No. Like, we're praying to God. Like, we're going to go out in faith. I looked at them, I was like, man, these guys, I'm so proud of them. They're the kind of people that said, I'm going to pray that God keeps back the rain, and I'm so confident that God is going to do it that I'm not even going to bring an umbrella. Do you have that kind of faith? It's not up to us to figure out how. It's up to us to figure out who and to know that God is in control. There's this 10th grade girl. So some people in the, in the, uh, in the DR short-term uh, missions team said, hey, you know what? Uh, it looks really bad out there. This one 10th uh, grade girl, she's like, uh, I think, like, maybe we should, like, all, uh, like, pray for, like, a minute each. Like, let's all just, like, continue to pray, and I think God can do it, and I think it's going to be awesome, and why don't we do that? And she's, like, kind of sheepish, but that's the way she talks. And she's like, yeah, let's pray, let's pray. We get out there to the field. It's, like, dumping rain on our way out there, and, and we get there. It's five, we're supposed to play at 6 o'clock. At 5.51, uh, someone shows his phone and, and, and says, hey, you know what? We're in this, like, Doppler radar says we're in red light zone. That means, like, thunder and lightning. This is, like, emergency status. I don't know if we can play. We're just going to pray the rain away. We're going to pray the rain away. And then four hours later, four hours later, we had the most amazing time, the sweetest time. Even the black team that got slaughtered 13 to 4 had the best time. I was on that team, so I can talk smack about us, right? We had the most amazing time out there, and everyone from the players to the fans to the photographers to the food people said we couldn't have had better weather. It rained a little bit, but it provided the best possible, best possible scenario for us to play. And I remember driving home, and I looked at the weather report, and, and it said from 4 o'clock to 8 o'clock, and I said, there's a 100% chance right where we were, thunder and lightning. So we reckoned, and we cheered, they cheered, and we realized, hey, even though the farmers get their rain and the orange groves get their rain, it's not a big deal for God to throw a little canopy over this one field in the middle of Winter Garden so that we can experience God in the way that we did. And so I'm telling our folks who are in the DR, I said, listen, 
I don't think it's because God wanted us to play softball that much. I think that's important to remember. And it's not about the money that was raised. Almost $3,000 came in, but that would have come in regardless of whether we played or not. But I think what God is trying to teach you young missionaries is to understand that what matters to you matters to God. And even though every other place in central Florida is being dumped on with rain, it's not hard for God to answer your prayers. And it's not up to you to figure out how to do this. It's up to you to know who you're praying to and to be faithful to him. Because you see, young people, this is a lesson that you need to understand. Because when you go to the Dominican Republic, there will be times when you think there's no way possible that God could show up in this way. And it may keep you from wanting to pray, but your job is not to figure it out. Your job is to know who you're praying to and to know that even one person with God becomes a majority and all of the odds, even if it's a 100% chance of rain, are now stacked in your favor. See, it's not up to us, guys, to figure out how. It's up to us to reckon who it is that we're going to and thus understand that he's able to figure out things that we have no capacity in our minds to think of. That's the first thing we see about faith. The second thing that we see, very simple, faith is the difference between life and death. Understand this, verse 28, by faith kept the Passover and the sprinkling of blood so that the what? The destroyer of the firstborn would not touch the firstborn of Israel. Verse 29, by faith the people passed through the Red Sea. But when the Egyptians tried to do so, they were drowned. Verse 31, by faith the prostitute Rahab, because she welcomed the spies, was not killed. Three things that we see here. Okay, three things that we see here in three consecutive verses. There is life and there is death. And the default is that all are going to die because the wages of sin is death. The only thing separating the living from the dead is faith. That's the only thing that separates the living from the dead. Let me make it clear to us, guys. Not everyone is going to be saved. Okay, not everybody is going to be saved. Not only will not everyone be saved, but not everyone who goes to church will be saved. Not everybody who listens to and can retell a sermon will be saved. Not everyone who says they're a Christian will be saved. Not everyone who says the right things or sings the right songs or is a moral person will be saved. Not everyone who thinks they are saved is going to be saved. The only way, and the Bible is crystal clear, the only way we will be saved is by faith. It's the only way. Faith in the person and the promises and the provision of God alone. It's the only way we're going to be saved. And the evidence of that faith is that there is a faith that works. It's not faith and works that's going to save you. It's not faith or works that's going to save you. It is a faith that works. If there is no evidence of your faith, if there is no desire to live a life in keeping with Scripture, then the most probable biblical explanation is that you don't have the saving faith that you think that you have. Okay, I'm, not, I'm not trying to, to 
I'm not trying to, this is not shock value at all. I just don't want you to get to the end. Of, this is my pastoral responsibility for all of us to not get to God on judgment day and say, God, I should be led into heaven because I had all of these things on my spiritual resume. None of those things matter anything. The only thing that matters is faith that works itself, because, works itself out because of the grace of God in your life. That nothing in my hands I bring, simply to the cross I cling. The only boast that we will have is Jesus Christ and him crucified. And that's the only thing that will get us into life eternal. Nothing else apart from that. And the Bible is unmistakably, undeniably clear about that. And a lot of people who are sitting in churches around America are mistakenly believing that they're going to be with God in heaven when in reality there's not because there's no saving faith as evidenced by the works in their lives. If there is no desire for a grace-bought, blood-bought obedience because of faith in the finished work of Christ, in your life, in my life, in anyone's life, then the most probable reason in Scripture is that we have not put our trust in another for our salvation and for our eternal destiny. Not everyone, the Bible is clear, not everyone will be saved simply because we think we are. There's a message of the Passover. It says that sin must be punished. That everyone is a sinner. And we don't gloss over our sin. Yeah, I steal things and I don't care about it. Yeah, I sleep around with people and I don't care about it. Yeah, I, I, I slander people and I don't care about it. If there's no desire in our hearts, if there's no tinge of the Holy Spirit convicting us over our sin, then it's probably because the Holy Spirit does not reside within our hearts. If there is no desire to follow Christ or no desire to desire to follow Christ within our hearts, then it's probably because we are still in the center of our lives and our hearts have not been surrendered to the person and the work of Jesus Christ. The message of the Passover is that sin has to be punished and the blood of an innocent lamb must be slain in order that the guilty could go free and find life. This week on, on Father's Day, uh, my family and another uh, dear friend, family, we went out to eat at a restaurant, just hanging out, having a good, good, good time, sweet fellowship, enjoying the time together. And then late in the meal as we were done, a group of young men walked in, guys that um, you know, we know well. Uh, they're, they're, they're brothers who live in Orlando. A lot of them we, we play basketball with. We've seen in different contexts saw them, and, and, and many of them are not followers of Christ. Some of them at some point have gone to church. Some of them uh, sporadically still do go to church. And we got to talking. I talked with a good number of them, and, and they're like, yeah, you know, Pastor, we want to come out to the church. We're going to come out. Next week we're going to be out. Not this week. They said next week we're going to come out. We're going to come out, and we've been wanting to come out. And, and as each one I was talking with them, my heart just, like, broke over them. If I talk to anyone who knows them, people would say, these guys are so nice. They're so sweet. They would do anything for their friends. And yet when we dig to a deeper level, the one thing that I hear is that they're so lost without Jesus. And as I was talking to them, I felt the urgency of a dying man Speaking to dying men. 
because not everyone is going to be saved. There's only two choices. There's death. There's life. There's no purgatory. It's death or life. And the only thing that sets, that sets the difference between death and life is faith in Christ. That's the only thing. The next day, Monday, family was out at, at, at Publix, and we saw this Chinese lady, elderly lady. We've been praying for a long time for her family and for her daughter who's friends with Olivia. We got to talking, so happy, so such a big smile on her face and asked her how she's doing and what she's up to and said, oh, I just want money, more money, more money. And she's laughing about it. And I, I, I looked at her and I saw basically what we see in verse 29, that the people who walk through the Red Sea on one side and those who walk through the Red Sea on the other, you know, there's not a big difference between the living and the dead when you look at them with human eyes. Looked at that lady, and, and she's happy. She's got a smile on her face, maybe sometimes bigger than the smile on the faces of those who are believers. But the Christians and non-Christians, we live in the same neighborhoods. We, live, we go to the same schools. We work in the same places. We play the same softball games, basketball games. We, we frequent the same stores. We live in the same community. All these things are, are so similar, but the one invisible thing that separates these two groups of people, which is the most important thing, is that some are destined for life, and others are destined for death. And they look so similar, one with the other. But the eyes of faith see something different. A couple days ago, I was sitting at, at Starbucks waiting to, for, for a lunch meeting. And I saw this guy come in. Friends of some of our people. I've seen him at, at Starbucks about three times. Three different Starbucks over a period of about two months. Every time I see him, my heart used to go to church, very uh, well off now, one of the most successful people that you might know, doing great, great things in the world. But my heart breaks because apart from Jesus, there's no life. There's no life in him. I see that he has everything that the world wants, everything that Moses could have had. But without life, looking into the hollow eyes of a hollow soul that doesn't know Jesus. I think about these things and my heart is just like a, a messed up, just messed up in my heart. God saying, don't lose the urgency of the salvation of souls. Eternity matters. Heaven and hell matters. If they're not bound for life right now, they're bound for death. And you've got to care. Like you've got to care. Our faith is shown in the actions of our lives, but it's also shown in the fact that we care about people who are dying and spending an eternity apart from God. Spurgeon would always say this. He said, if you don't care about the eternal destiny, about the souls of men and women who know Jesus not, then it's a good indication that you also know not this Savior. Do you have a burden, church, brothers and sisters, my beloved people? Do you have a burden for people in your life, people in our world who do not know Jesus? Because the good news, when it infiltrates our lives, causes us to want to take that good news to other people. Life begets life. Hope begets hope. A dead man walking goes and tells other people where they too, dead people, might be able to find life. 
and the message of Rahab, this prostitute, is that of all people, the most unlikeliest of folks can be saved by God. And when you think of people in Scripture, oftentimes you think about their occupation. You think of Matthew, the tax collector. You think of David, the king. You think of Moses, the shepherd. You think of Joseph, the prime minister. You think of Esther, the queen. You think of people, you think of their job description. And every time Rahab is mentioned in the New Testament, just in case you wanted to be reminded, it says Rahab, the prostitute. Now, you can't knife this up to make it sound like, oh, she, she owned a hotel and she let people stay in the hotel. No, she sold her body for sexual favors in order to get money as her livelihood. People said a prostitute, this is the oldest vocation in the world. But this is who she was. Strike one, strike two, she's a female. Strike three, she's a Gentile. And yet the arm of the Lord was not too short to save her. You don't need to figure out how God is going to save them. Your job is to reckon who is going to do the saving and to move obediently to God in faith. Do you ever feel like Rahab? Maybe we're not talking about people out there. Maybe we're talking about us in here. Do you feel like Rahab? Whether you're a guy or a girl. You feel like I'm too, I'm too lost to be saved by God. The things that I've done, the people that I've shared beds with, the things that I've done with my time, with my money, the things I've done to my body, the ways that I've hurt myself, do you feel like you're too lost for God? I tell you that God, in this beautiful moment of grace, because she heard. See, this is the difference. It says, Rahab in verse 31, because she welcomed the spies, was not killed with those who are disobedient. Literally what disobedient means, it means they heard the message but they did not obey. Here's what it's saying. All of these people in Jericho heard about who God was. They heard about the Red Sea. They heard about the Exodus. They heard about the walls of Jericho coming down. But of all of them, Rahab actually believed. All of us are hearing, but not all of us may believe. But Rahab did. And you know what God does? Regardless of your past, here's what God does. Whenever he saves you, whenever he redeems you, he not only repairs you, but he prepares you for something else. And here's what Rahab the prostitute would do. She would get her life by grace, by faith, sanctified, changed by God, and she would be devoted to one man and one man only. His name was Salmon. Salmon and Rahab would have a son named Boaz. Boaz would marry a lady named Ruth. And Ruth would give birth to a man named Obed. Obed gave birth to Jesse. Jesse became the father of King David. But through that tainted, prostituted, sexually immoral woman would come the promised grace of God is so big that no matter how deep your shame is, His grace will chase further and deeper 
him. And though our hearts go fawn over him, his love will go further still. That's for you. That's for your friends that you don't think will ever come. For everybody who feels like they're too far from God. in the right place this morning. Two roads. One leads to life. The other leads to death. The only way to life is through faith. Several years ago, I was on an airplane. This is it. I was on an airplane in the winter from Orlando going up to Baltimore, Washington International Airport, Southwest Airlines. Got into BWI, raining, cold, nasty out. Flight attendant gets on the intercom, and she says, thank you for flying Southwest Airlines on behalf of Southwest. I would love to be the first one to welcome you to sunny Hawaii. But because I can't do that, I welcome you to rainy, cold Baltimore. It's not my fault. You chose to get on this plane that was going to Baltimore. Can I ask you which plane you're on? You can't be on the plane to death and think that you're on the plane to life. There's only one way, and it goes through faith in Jesus Christ and the Lamb. Let's pray. There's only two options in life. Maybe some of us are here. I'm sure some of us are in here. We may not be on the road to life right now. We, we think we are. We thought we were. But we realize that maybe, maybe the plane that I'm riding isn't labeled faith in Jesus Christ. Maybe it's labeled something else. It's labeled my charitable giving. It's labeled I help disabled children. It's labeled I tutor kids who are underprivileged. It's labeled I'm a nice person. It's labeled I've done more good than harm in this world. It's labeled I go to church. All of those planes, my friends, will lead us to the wrong destination if those are the things we're hoping in to find life and to find it in eternity and to find it in heaven. Jesus Christ, his shed blood is the only remedy for the sin-stained heart that every human is born into this world with. There's only one way. There's only one way. we pray, I want to ask us to examine our hearts. If you know for certain by virtue of the fact that there's works that authenticate your faith, then I want to encourage you to pray for people in your life right now who don't know Jesus. People in here, people not in here, let's pray for them. But if you're not sure today and you're wrestling with that, hear the good news. Hear the good news. 
For all of sin falls short of the glory of God, and the wages of sin is death. But the gift of God is eternal life through Christ Jesus our Lord, because God demonstrates his own love for us in this while we were our sinners, Christ died for us. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Today's your day. Today's your day. You can cross over from death to life. I'm going to invite us to spend a few moments praying. For those of us in here who have not made that decision, I'm going to lead us in a prayer in just a few moments. Lead us in a prayer to acknowledge our desperate need. You've got to see that it's a desperate need. There's no other hope, no other boast than Christ alone. Let's pray together for a couple minutes right now. Can we do that? Praying in faith for our own salvation or for the salvation of those who don't know the Lord. Spend a few moments in prayer. I'll come back and then we'll pray together so that some of us might exercise faith through the hands of come before God and I tell our short-term missionaries God sees everything that we do we're naked before God he sees everything if we're here this morning God doesn't have any grandchildren that means that you're not saved just because your dad is or your mom is because your dad's a missionary, because your dad's a pastor, because your mom is a prayer warrior. We're not saved because of that. God doesn't have any grandchildren. He only has children. And he stands at the door of every heart, and he knocks, and he says, if you open the door, I'll come in and have the deepest fellowship with you. I'll change you from the inside out. You don't need to change yourself. Just come as you are. I'll take you as, I, as you are, and I'll be the one to transform you from the inside out. here, I'm just going to invite us to keep our eyes closed and I'm going to pray a prayer over us, but for the sake of the sake of accountability and follow-up, if there's anyone in here, as we close our eyes and pray, if there's anyone in here who, I, I know in my heart that's me, and I want to talk to you, I want to talk to you, DL, before you leave, this the most important decision I need to make, and I, I don't want to take risks with it our eyes closed, our heads bowed. If there's anyone like that, I, I need Jesus in my life and I, I, I need him. That's a decision of faith I'm making today. If there's anyone like that, I just ask that you raise your hand from where you are. Okay, thank you. Thank you, thank you. Hallelujah. Okay. 
several of our people are responding right now to this gracious invitation of God. going to make this choice for you, my friend. You've got to engage yourself. I'm going to ask all of us in our hearts to pray this as a reminder for some of you and for the first time you're making this real in your own heart. Father in heaven, I thank you for loving me. You know all the wrong that I've done. And those things disqualify me from heaven where only sinless perfection resides. But God, you also know all the good things that I've done and the good things that I've put my hope in in order to be accepted. But I know that even those could never be good enough to earn my hope and my salvation. I thank you that you love me and you provided a way by sending your one and only son, Jesus, to live that perfect life that I tried and failed to live. And then you died on the cross for my sins, Jesus. I believe that. And I need you. Come into my life to be the savior of my life and to be my new master. Be my God. And be my king. Help me to be the person you want me to be. I love you you have loved me first and knowing all the wrong I've done you love me still thank you for that amazing grace so Father in heaven we thank you for those who've made that profession of faith we praise you and thank you that the arm of the Lord is not too short to save and that you desire the salvation of every person because you love you're patient with us, not wanting anyone to perish, but that all would come to repentance. So now, may those who've made that confession of faith grow in their walk with you. Christ before, the world behind, joyfully living for you. And for the many people in our lives that we know who know you not, we pray that you would take their hearts and bring them to salvation for your glory and for our eternal joy and